We are arrived at the finish line. We have been studying in Galatians now for several months, uh, going verse by verse through God's holy and inspired word. And it is always a little bittersweet for me when we get to the end of a book because I've enjoyed so much of things that God has shown us in this great testimony of His peace and of His truth and of His amazing grace. Um, but we are going to be beginning a, a new mini-series as we approach Easter. We're going to spend just a few weeks looking at some of the bold pictures of the cross that we see in the Old Testament. We know that Jesus uh, is not an innovation, that God has known from the beginning of time that He would redeem His lost people through His Son. And so when we look back through the Old Testament Scripture with an eye towards God's solution to our sin, we can see some very vivid and clear pictures of the way God used um, the Old Testament to reveal to us and to put some ideas in our minds to look forward to the cross and to see the evidence of how He would redeem His people. So pictures of the cross in the Old Testament will be our focus for the next uh, several week, weeks leading up to, uh, to Easter. But before that, we want to we do justice to the ending of this amazing letter that the Apostle Paul has, uh, has recorded for us. So if you've got your Bibles open to Galatians chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 18 this morning and, uh, and studying the contents of these paragraphs. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this new creation, by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with, you, be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. So as we come to the end of this inspired, trustworthy letter, there are some comments that Paul wants to make that will add force to the letter's warnings and arguments. And so Paul takes the pen from his scribe and he writes this last section himself in a personal farewell to the Galatians. It's very likely that Paul had an assistant writing down his words as he dictated them up to this point, but to assure them that these were his words, that they were not some forgery, that somebody was not borrowing his name to try to add credence uh, to some foreign gospel, and maybe to even add extra emphasis to this final charge, Paul personally writes down this conclusion as evidenced by the change in handwriting, his larger script being written on the original manuscript. We see a similar practice at the end of 1 Corinthians and 2 Thessalonians and the Colossians letter that it was a, a common thing for Paul to finish his letters in his own handwriting uh, to show as a personal touch that he was the one responsible for delivering uh, this this information from the Holy Spirit to the people. Paul's last bit of commentary returns to the main theme of the letter. And so we're going to do one last recap to make sure that we remember how far we've come in this study. Galatians is six chapters long, and conveniently you can break it down into three two-chapter sections. The first two chapters present the basic conflict that concerns Paul as he writes to the friends in Galatia. And here Paul lays the groundwork as to why these churches can trust the things he has to say. False teachers had made their way into the communities there in Galatia. This young group of churches was being deceived, and these false teachers were threatening to distort the view of the true gospel. Paul is determined to intercept that message, to neutralize it, to undo the damage which might have already been done by these false teachers. So chapters 1 and 2 present an ethos, a credibility for them to remember that he was indeed the one that planted their churches, that he's a faithful minister of the gospel, and that they can trust the things he has to say. The second, two, or the second group of chapters, chapter 3 and 4, 
lay out Paul's technical argument in support of justification by faith alone, not by works. This draws heavily on the Old Testament example of Abraham and his wives as we see how interconnected the Old Covenant is with the New Covenant. And in the last two chapters, Paul explains the practical ramifications of the doctrine that applies to the life of spirit-filled believers. So here at the very conclusion, Paul's going to draw our attention back to the main argument that he's making in defense of the truth, an argument that he hopes will protect the Galatians from confusion and deception. Remember, the Galatian churches exist because of the missionary efforts of Paul and Barnabas and perhaps a couple of other apostles who had traveled through that region into towns like Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, sharing the gospel message, bringing people to a true trust in Jesus Christ and establishing leadership in those places. You can read about that again in Acts chapter 13 and 14, a wonderful record of the things that God did through His servants. Paul established these churches on the wonderful truth of the real gospel, the good news that we can have salvation in Jesus Christ. This gospel has many different components. In order to understand the gospel, you've got to understand sin. You've got to know that sin is not just behavior that makes life a little worse. Sin is offense to God. It is something that makes us an enemy to the one who created us. It is breaking God's command, ignoring it, and walking in our own way. You also have to understand man's inability to overcome their inherent sin. If you think that sin is just a problem that we can solve by working harder or, or thinking smarter, then you don't really understand sin. And so Paul lays it out to them again how important it is for them to know that their sin is serious and that there is nothing that they can do to conquer the sin that is within them. Part of the gospel as well is the provision of Jesus Christ, knowing that God, seeing us in our state of helplessness, determined to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that was perfect and spotless. Jesus, being God Himself, took on flesh and lived a life that we could not live, fulfilling the law entirely, never offending God, and in being as we cannot be, perfect and spotless in nature. That that provision was given not just as an example to us, but that provision of Jesus Christ was so that we would have someone who would give their lives for us, a sacrifice, a substitutionary atonement, that Christ would go to the cross and though He deserved not to die, would allow Himself to be murdered, put to death, as a criminal would be put to death in, in a terrible and grueling way. And in doing so, would take the sin of the world upon His own shoulders and bear the guilt and shame of our sin. That death was a precursor to the miraculous event of the resurrection. Three days after being killed for our sins, that Jesus would show His power and reveal His true divinity. The fact that He was God in the flesh meant that He couldn't truly be killed. So on the third day, He rose again, victorious over death, victorious over our sin. This amazing resurrection, this payment for the penalty of sin, allowed all those whom God would draw to Himself to be regenerated. Those of us whom God is calling into His family were dead in our sins and our trespasses. We had no spiritual life in us. We were alive, but we were dead spiritually before Christ paid the penalty for our sin and made it possible for our hardened hearts to become soft again and come to life. This regeneration demands a response in the heart of man. When God awakens us and helps us see our sin, when He reveals to us our our inability to save ourselves, then the heart of man must respond in repentance, seeing that God has loved us so much that He would send His Son. And so the heart that is regenerated is going to repent to God. It's going to show a, a, a sadness for their sin. It's going to recognize that only Jesus Christ can take that sadness away. Essential to Paul's description of the Gospel is this inability of man to save himself from sin and God's willingness to save man through that sacrifice of Jesus. In order for man to be saved, he is utterly dependent on the intervention and the provision of God. This is sometimes called monergism. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before, but monergism is a term that describes this one-sided salvation. The prefix mono means one. So the term monergism declares that the work done to save sinful man is the product of God's efforts alone. Man cannot take any credit for being pulled from the mire of sin. 
He's been rescued by the merciful actions of a loving and just God. And so monergism is a term worth knowing because it squarely puts the emphasis and the credit for man's redemption on God instead of allowing room for man to be credited with his own righteousness. And we're going to see why that's important here as we work our way through these verses here at the end of chapter 6. But let me point for a second to Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. It also speaks of this concept. Apostle Paul wrote to that, um, in, in that epistle, he said, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus, in His great power, did what we could not do for ourselves? Like many passages in Paul's letters, what we just read describes a monergistic salvation, a one-sided grace that He pours out unto us a salvation that starts with God, is worked out by God, and is finished and preserved by God. 1 Corinthians 4.7, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friends in Corinth who are struggling through some, some difficult circumstances. They are getting caught up in, uh, in, in thinking too highly of some of their teachers. They are segmenting themselves. They are becoming proud in what they proclaim to know. And so he says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 4, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, don't act as though you're smarter than your brothers or that you were wiser. There was something special in you that made you more savable than the person next to you. Everything that you have that is of eternal value is a gracious gift that God has given to you free of charge. The price of it was all paid by Jesus. And so our hearts cannot be filled with pride. Our hearts must be filled with gratitude for what Christ has done for us. The men, however, who had come in behind Paul, these preachers who came in after the churches had been established and began to teach their own version of the gospel are often referred to as the Judaizers. The salvation they were pushing was not monergistic. These Judaizers were from a Jewish background, as were the disciples, as were Jesus, as was Paul. But that Jewish background, which was founded in the law of Moses, began to impress itself upon the, the revelation of Jesus Christ in such a way that people began to get the order of salvation confused and began to think wrongly about what brings us into the kingdom of God. These false teachers responded positively to Christ, but they were compelled to fit the work of Jesus into the old covenant of the law. In their opinion, what Paul had taught was a good enough foundation, but they insisted there was more to being saved than simply putting your faith and trust in the Messiah. They were making an effort to try and re-indoctrinate the Galatian Christians by teaching them a, a variation on the gospel. And here's the variation. Pay close attention. The, the comparison is in your notes. See if you can notice the difference here. These false teachers were also against sin. They recognized that sin was not just practical mistakes, but was indeed an offense against God. They recognized the inability of man, at least in the beginning of their teachings, that, that we could not overcome our sin and so we needed a provision. They recognized that Jesus was that provision and that by giving His life, He was a sacrifice for our sin. They recognized the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That it was essential that He did what He said He would do and, and rose from the grave triumphant. Then they preached a response to that resurrection. That response included two parts. Belief in Jesus Christ, but also obedience to the law of Moses. That's where reference to circumcision comes in. These False preachers were coming in and declaring to the Galatians that they needed, if they were truly serious about salvation, not only Messiah, but they needed to become circumcised and in doing so, come under the whole yoke of the law. You need a Savior so that you can fulfill the law perfectly, and if you don't fulfill the law perfectly, then you don't deserve a Savior. In light of 
commitment to the law, they believed an individual was regenerated and made new. So the, the addition of two small details here might seem like a trivial thing, but they're absolutely critical. Inability and ability are incompatible here. They believed, at least in word, that man was unable of saving themselves, and so they needed Jesus. But then they brought attention back to what man can do by putting them under the yoke of the law. So in one breath, they're saying, you are unable to save yourself, but you must save yourself. There was a conflict there, a contradiction. And the order of things has changed. According to the true gospel, man is in such a fallen state that he doesn't have the capacity to respond to the gospel or even to the law, for that matter, in a saving way. Until the work of regeneration is done in us, the law is foolishness to us. We've talked about the heart of man and how our hearts are born hardened to the things of God. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit takes that heart of stone that is universal to all human beings and softens it and changes it and makes it possible for us to, to express a faith to God, to even believe in the works that He has done. So in this new gospel, which isn't a gospel at all, obedience is included in the process of salvation. In Paul's true gospel, obedience is a fruit of salvation. It isn't tied up to salvation. It's a fruit of salvation. It flows out of loving the Lord. It, it's a natural consequence of trusting in Jesus Christ and having your life made new by Him. But these false teachers were wrapping obedience up into salvation itself and requiring that people work side by side with Jesus to make themselves presentable to God. This new gospel that was being preached is what we would rightfully call synergism. Synergism means man working together with God, doing his part while God does his part. Rather than salvation by the work of God alone, it is cooperative. Jesus dies for your sin, but you have to be doing your part by being circumcised, by keeping the law of Moses. So you can see how important it is for Paul to declare the truth to these people in Galatia and to help them to understand that that false gospel that had begun to infiltrate was a grave error because it took from Christ the credit that he deserves. We can borrow an illustration that Jesus himself used in explaining why his disciples were not fasting in the same manner as the Pharisees. You might remember this from the Synoptic Gospels. I'm going to use the one from Mark to help you see what we're talking about here. Look at Mark chapter 2, verses 21 through 22. I'll include this on the screen in case uh, you don't have time to turn there. It's just a brief passage. Jesus is teaching them about the way that the disciples were not fasting exactly like the Pharisees were fasting. He says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This seems kind of cryptic. And if you've never put wine into wineskins, which most of you probably have not, you might be a little confused by the illustration. Wineskins were made out of the skins of slaughtered animals. And uh, if you put new wine into an older wineskin, you'd have a problem. A wineskin that had been used for some time would begin to grow somewhat hard, somewhat tough. It wouldn't, become, it wouldn't be as malleable and as stretchable as a fresh wineskin would. When you make new wine, it goes through a process called fermentation. And the fermentation process calls that, causes that, that uh, wine to chemically expand. Now, if you put a new wine into an old wineskin that has become rigid, it will begin to swell and crack. Likewise, if you were to patch, uh, in, in a, if you were to take a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment and patch an old garment, and then that, that piece of cloth was washed and began to shrink, it would tear away from the old garment. So in order to receive this new gospel, this understanding of Jesus Christ coming along and saying there's a new covenant that I'm inviting people into, you have to have a soft heart. You have to be flexible. You can't try to fit it into the rigidity of the Old Testament covenant. It doesn't work. It would do great damage to the name of Christ if the Galatian believers fell for this false teaching and began to thrust their own works, trust their own works for salvation. It would be a tremendous blow to their relationship to the Lord. It would also lead to many more confused and deceived people who would hear this hybrid of works and law from the corrupted believers in that area. 
So look again at, at verses 12 and 13 in our text today, Galatians chapter 6. Here Paul makes a summary assessment of the men who are teaching this synergistic gospel by drawing attention to their motives. Why would they teach this? If it's so clearly wrong, why would they desire to, to change people's minds and to make them follow after this, this different gospel rather than following after the gospel of Paul and Barnabas and the other apostles? First of all, we're going to give you two reasons in these two scriptures here. First of all, the Judaizers were motivated by their own pride. Their own pride in circumcising many converts to this novel new gospel that they had invented. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. What does Paul mean when he says a good showing in the flesh? He's talking about those who want to gather themselves large groups of people, many people who will say amen to the way that they teach, especially if that amen is in exclusion to other apostles that they see as rivals. Just like you, I get uh, hundreds of spam mails in my email every week. I'm sure you've probably experienced frustration about that yourself. But because I'm a pastor by trade, my spam is probably a little more spiritual than your spam is. I get stuff uh, regarding mission trips, and, and here's a new conference you should go to, and this great new book will help your congregation. I get a lot of spiritual spam in my email. Um, on Tuesday, I got an email that stated in so many words, it was very bold about it, it said, is your church concerned with numbers, meaning the size, the many people that are in your church, getting bigger, adding people to your congregation? Is your church concerned with numbers? If not, then you don't love the Great Commission. And in some way, that is true. Okay, In some way, of course, as a church, we desire to see people coming in and hearing the gospel, right? We pray every week for people to bring new faces here, new hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. If God would grow us, would bring people who've been sincere and seeking after the Lord, that would be a tremendous blessing to us. It would be a glory to His great name. Of course, we want to see more and, pe more and more people grow to love the Lord. We want our church to grow for His glory. It went on to, to pitch, though, a number of church growth strategies on how to increase your number. It showed you how to get people through the door, how to impress them with, with flashy presentation, with entertaining interaction, so that they might come, not necessarily to hear the gospel, but to be in a church that was exciting and new and moving. And so the, the, the guilt that was portrayed by this spam email was unfounded. They were hoping to build the numbers of your church, not necessarily for the gospel, but for the sake of the numbers themselves. And sadly, there are many churches today that have made compromises to God's Word and the way that we worship just so that people will come into their building. Not so that they'll hear the true gospel preached, but so that they will come into the building. Ironically, the day after I got that in my spam email, a brother in the church texted me a link to an article, and it was entitled, Pastor, Why Do You Want a Big Church? Why do you want a big church? And so it assumed the heart that, that wants to see God's kingdom grow, but it said, are you really motivated by the right things? It's not bad to want a big church for the right reasons, but truly what should matter is the glory of God and that He is worshipped the way that He desires to be worshipped. And as more and more people come to that, we can rejoice. But we cannot let the desire to become some megachurch or some influencer on the world stage that gets called into different preaching opportunities. We can't let that define who we're going to be as a church. We need to remain humble. We need to desire growth for the right reasons. And we must not be willing to compromise who we are or what we do in order to get artificial growth that doesn't make true disciples of Jesus Christ. Christian, we've got to learn to be skeptical of any doctrine that threatens to exalt you above the Savior that you have come to worship today. And we can see all around us in this world that, that it's tempting to draw the love and praise of people to ourselves rather than bring it up to Jesus Christ who truly deserves it. These Judaizers were preaching their false gospel in part because they were deeply motivated to draw themselves a following of individuals that would herald them as wise 
and good leaders and that would pat them on the back and give them credit for their spotless obedience to God's covenant law. They wanted to be able to return to Jerusalem and report about all the circumcisions that they had caused by convincing people that they couldn't be saved without this law that God had died to fulfill. Every Gentile believer who compromised and accepted circumcision would be a feather in the cap of these false teachers. Every convert would be a bragging point in their minds, evidence that they were true apostles. But Paul teaches us otherwise. The second motivator is that these Judaizers were motivated to avoid persecution from aligning with Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Why? And only order, in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. How would this false doctrine insulate the Judaizers from being persecuted from the cross of Christ? It's interesting to note that the earliest church's most serious threat and opponent was not Rome. The earliest church's most serious threat and opponent were people of the Jewish persuasion that refused to see Jesus as the Messiah and saw the new burgeoning church as a threat to traditional Judaism. Paul should know he was a part of that Jewish opposition to Christianity before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. You might recall in Acts chapter 14, Paul, in his travels through the cities of Galatia, found himself in Lystra. And as he began to preach, many Gentile converts were made there. Many people who didn't even have a Jewish background at all came to trust in this message of the Son of God coming down to live with man, to fulfill the law, and to give his life on the cross. He began to stir up people. And this wasn't the first place he had stirred up people. As Paul preached in places like Antioch and Iconium, he had stirred up people before. And before you know it, those people that were angry at him found out he was in Lystra. And they came. And they dragged him into the center of the square. And these Jewish individuals who were opposed to Jesus, who did not believe he was the Messiah, intended to put him to death. Paul was stoned to within a, in, in, within a breath of his life. And yet, because of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit who had more plans for Paul. He was able to get up and dust himself off and walk away from that alive and in one piece. Perhaps he bore scars from that experience. He even says at the end of this letter that because he shows the marks of a true apostle that he was willing to suffer for the sake of the cross that they should trust that his message to them is true. People who have strong beliefs often see people who believe differently as a threat. And so there was an underlying fear that stimulated this doctrine of faith plus works. If the Judaizers could strike a compromise, if they could find some middle ground, perhaps they could have their Messiah without drawing the fire of those who didn't believe that Jesus truly was the Messiah. If a group of Jewish nationals who were angry about Christians were to approach these Judaizers with hostility, one of them could say, well, no, hold on, hold on, we're not so different as you, are we? We preach Jesus, but we still require circumcision. We still abide by the dietary laws. We're still in the, in the temple offering our sacrifices. We're observing the festivals. We're no threat to you simply because we believe the Messiah has come. This was their insurance policy against persecution. But friends, the Messiah did not come just to impress us. Jesus fulfilled the law. He accomplished the epitome of Jewish obedience. There was never a more noble Jew than Jesus. There has never been an Israelite with such perfect obedience and adherence to the law of Moses. And no one is compared to Jesus in a moral sense since. But Jesus' perfect obedience was more than a high benchmark. It was more than just an example to us. It was a requirement. Without that perfectly lived life, Jesus would not have purity to offer in our place. Had Jesus not fulfilled that law, he could not share his perfect righteousness with us. By fulfilling perfection for us, Jesus made it so that we could taste the blessings of perfection without actually living a perfect life ourselves. Though we have failed God, though we have struggled, and though we struggle still, the perfection of God stands as our righteousness. It is imputed to those who believe in Jesus. And so here's a critical point. We cannot miss this, church. If Jesus did what we could not do, 
if his perfection is the reason that we who are imperfect might taste perfection, then how can we look at our own holiness with any kind of pride? How can we look at our own personal obedience to the law with any kind of boasting whatsoever? How can we look at ourselves as better than another? Our only legitimate boast is in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 6, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Monergism is the right way to understand our salvation because it credits all the honor and all the glory and power to Jesus. It recognizes that He alone is worthy of praise for what we have become in Christ. I was lost and I could not find the way. The law was condemning me. I could not keep it. I could not adhere to it. What's more, I didn't even really want to. I needed a new heart. My heart was hard to the things of the Lord and I was only frustrated by the law. I needed a new wineskin that could stretch and be conformed to the ways of God. Jesus showed me my brokenness that I was blind to. He lifted the veil. He regenerated me and showed me what I needed to see so that I might be able to have faith in Him because He lived perfectly and died sacrificially and rose triumphantly. I can be a new creation in Jesus Christ. May all the glory be to Christ our King. The false teachers that Paul preached against were stealing credit from Jesus. There's a particular uh, series of Bible commentaries that I really enjoy. It's called the Pillar Bible Commentary Series. And uh, I remember last, two years ago uh, at the Shepherds Conference going up to the table where they had all those, those laid out and I remember seeing that there was one missing. It was the commentary to the book of Ephesians and I got into a conversation with the gentleman who was running the booth there. He said, yeah, we actually had the commentary out and you could buy it. But unfortunately, it was brought to our attention that the man who we hired to be a part of this project and take Ephesians and be the commentary for, for Ephesians, he stole a good portion of his commentary from an obscure commentary that was published for a short time years ago. It was found that he had plagiarized a good much of what he had put down. He took credit for another man's work. He was willing to be paid by this company for the work and study that another man had done. So they decided to do the right thing and they pulled that commentary from the shelf because they didn't want to support the work of somebody who would steal the credit from someone else. When we claim that our salvation is based in any part off of our obedience to God's law, we are stealing glory from God. We are trying to rob from Him what He could only give graciously to us. And so we have no grounds to boast in our obedience. But there is a kind of boasting that we should be participating in. And that's, uh, that's shown in other places in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians one thirty one, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Since we are a new creation, and since now we do stand holy before God, let us constantly be willing and eager to brag about the work that Jesus did to make that possible. Let us point to Him and show His glory and His triumph over our sin. 2 Corinthians 10, 17-18 Let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had this to say on the matter. He says, You are not mature if you have a high esteem of yourself. He who boasts in himself is but a babe in Christ, if indeed he be in Christ at all. Young Christians may think much of themselves. Growing Christians think themselves nothing. Mature Christians know that they are less than nothing. The more holy we are, the more we mourn our infirmities and the humbler is our estimate of ourselves. 
as verse 15 tells us, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Only the newness of life that we can have when we put our faith and trust in this Jesus, who though he deserved exaltation and glory and praise, died a sinner's death, an ugly and brutal death on a cross, so that you and I might avoid the condemnation that we had earned through our rebellion to God's word. All that matters is what you cannot for yourself produce, a new creation, a heart that was dead before, and incapable of any eternal good being made alive by miraculous grace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I pray that for those of us who have experienced that here, if you have seen the Lord change your mind about your sin, if you have seen Him draw you near to Himself, if you have seen Him fill you with a love for what is good and holy and pure and a hatred for what is sinful and wicked to God, then you've experienced this new creation. If you have not yet experienced that, we pray that you would come and talk to us about it because we want that for you. If you have not seen this transformation in your life whereby the Lord God opens your eyes and brings you to the truth and changes you to a new person, a person who can rightfully praise and worship Him. Talk to the person who brought you today. Talk to one of our elders. We would love to sit and show you how you can know God through Jesus. There's one more matter to examine, and that is the way that Paul concludes the letter. In most of Paul's letters, he ends with a universal benediction of love and desire for the grace and peace of his brethren. It, it exists here at the end of Galatians, but it's a little bit different. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. There is a question that still hangs heavy in the air over the churches in Galatia. Who will the Galatians consider their true spiritual father? Will they trust the Apostle Paul and, and the gospel that caused them to become a church in the first place? Or will they turn aside from the gospel that Paul preached? Will they embrace these false teachers who had so recently challenged the validity of the gospel that they had been established with? The conversation to this point has been a one-way affair. Galatians is a letter, so it's Paul just writing to another people. It's not a conversation back and forth. And so this letter demands a response. Will they cling to the truth and boast in Christ's exclusive power to save? Or will they add their own works to the equation and try to rob Jesus of His glory? And so much depends on that. Because if they are to turn their backs, if they are to say no to Paul and to say yes to these false teachers, then the benediction that he gives to them doesn't belong to them. The grace and peace that is such a comfort to believers is peace to us, is grace to us, because it has overcome this misconception in our minds that we must somehow work hard to be lovable to God. If we trade grace in for works salvation, then peace is gone. Mercy is gone. And this great ending, this benediction, that Paul so dearly wants the Galatians to experience of grace and peace will not be theirs. Remember the seriousness of Galatians 1, verses 6-9, through 9, at the beginning of this wonderful letter where he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. What is at stake here? Everything. Everything. If our justification doesn't rest only in the hands of Jesus Christ, how can we have any hope? 
how can we have peace in this world if our boast is in our fallible, corrupted selves? But if, as I believe Paul trusts the Galatians will respond well, if they are believing the true gospel, then peace and grace belongs truly to them. And they are what he calls here the Israel of God. There were many in Jesus' day who claimed to be Israel. And yet he clearly proclaimed to them that not all who call themselves Israel are Israel. God's chosen people are those who truly trust in the work of God to overcome the example of Abraham who had faith in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness reinforces that concept here in the Galatian letter itself. And so we desire to be grafted into that true Israel. Romans 9, 6-7 says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Don't read this the wrong way. The word new does not show up anywhere here in regards to Israel. We must be careful not to think of the church today as some new Israel, as if the old Israel has been forgotten, forsaken, or even completed. Promises made there still stand, even if we the Gentile believers have been grafted into those promises in meaningful, albeit difficult ways to understand. We are standing with Israel as God's redeemed people. So the final word of the letter reads like this, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And it is so appropriate that the letter ends on that note. By fixing our attention on the grace that saves us apart from our works, grace that produces peace with God, and grace that draws our heart to honor the law because of the miraculous change it has wrought in us. May the grace of this epistle rest in your hearts, and may it give us rest. Before we dismiss you today, uh, we're going to have a word of prayer at the end here, but I have an announcement that I wanted to share with you on behalf of the Elder Board. We wanted to bring you abreast of some things that are going on in our church. Uh, we want to take a moment to share some important news because your elders strive to be as transparent as possible concerning the things that go on in this church. And there, there have been some important developments that we want to make you aware of. Last week, we were blessed to ordain Matt Sherman, Grateful for the celebration that we enjoyed last week, the culmination of not only his five years ministering here at First Family Church, but also several years of God preparing him prior to that in college and in the ministries of his home church in Livermore. Uh, you may have noticed that Pastor Paul and his family were not here to be a part of that service. And there was a reason for that. It has been our intention to discuss with you at the first opportunity on why that was the case. On the Monday before the ordination, Matt called and let us know that there was a church in Tulare, California that he had contacted regarding an open youth pastor position. A year and a half ago, when we brought Matt up to three-quarter time, um, he clarified that his long-term goal was to work full-time and that he may consider opportunities if they came up, but we had not been aware that he was applying for anything. Recently, talks between Matt and First Baptist Tulare had gotten more serious. There was a very good chance that they would be offering him a full-time job. And Matt did not feel right going into the ordination ceremony last week without letting us know that he and Tori would very likely be accepting a position at a different church. And that was difficult news for us to receive for a couple of reasons. First, most obviously, we love Matt and Tori. And it's been our joy to minister alongside them and to have them be a part of our family here at this church. So anytime there's a chance that someone you love may go somewhere else, there's the emotional sadness that comes with that. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to be near to each other. I'm sure the majority of you are hearing this news for the first time right now, and your affection for and attachment to Matt and Tori make it tough news to process. We love them, and we don't want to see them go, but we also want God's will to be done in their lives. So there was a personal emotional component to it all. Secondly, and, uh, and more importantly, the act of ordaining a pastor, of ordaining an elder, is by its very nature an exercise in trust. 
when we vote yes to ordain a man, we're saying that we identify God's true calling on their life. We're saying that beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they are qualified for the ministry and are committed and ready to serve. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. For us to hear that Matt was considering another position was difficult, but the fact that he had pursued that opportunity independent of our counsel made us take a step back and pray through the situation. Matt had received wisdom from other ordained men that perhaps he should keep his search private unless he found a situation that was a sure thing in order to spare us the anxiety of Matt possibly leaving if in fact it turned out that he was not. This advice uh, might make logical sense on some levels, but we believe it was bad counsel because it didn't take into account the trust that we have built with one another over the years or the impact that this sudden change would have on the congregation that Matt serves and loves. We suddenly needed to answer three very important questions and we only had a few days to do it. Did this decision constitute a lack of trust from Matt towards the elders? Should it give us cause to question our trust towards Matt? Is Matt's ability to make sound judgment where it should be for an elder? If ordination was not such a holy and important thing, we might have just passed it all off as bad timing and had no problem with it, but this is a serious decision that has implications to the health of God's church and serious implications for Matt and Tori as well. We would be doing them a huge disservice if we were to declare him ready and send him off into a world of ministry. It would be better for us to wait and allow more time for him to grow and develop as a minister. Unfortunately, Matt was gone most of the week um, leading up to the ordination. He was working at a camp through the school district, so our ability to discuss these things with him was limited. After much prayer and fasting and discussion, the board was not 100% on the same page about how we should proceed. While all four of us agreed that it was an error for Matt to keep this from us until the last minute, Sean, Clint, and I determined that proceeding with the ordination was the right thing to do. This was based on the overall testimony of Matt's work and growth here, the fact that he was acting on the advice of other ordained elders, combined with the fact that he did in fact feel conflicted about the proximity of his ordination and departure and told us prior to his ordination. Paul came to the determination based on factors which called into question Matt's ability to make sound judgment and the fact that it would be impossible for him to participate in the ordination service with joy and a clear conscience, that it would be right to delay the ordination service until we could process this more fully, giving Matt the opportunity to learn through this and display growth in the areas of wisdom and discernment. I want to stress this. This is very important for us all to understand. Paul was not questioning Matt's testimony or his sincere desire to serve God, his special gifting for ministry, or even whether Matt is called to ministry. He was saying that the right thing to do with sudden news like this in this complex situation was to wait and give it more time. This has been really hard for Matt because he never wanted to put us in such a difficult position. It's been really hard for us as the elders because our responsibilities are to do what is best for God's church and for Matt. And in the end, after discussing and considering all the details of the situation, we decided to move ahead with an elder majority and with the positive quorum of the church vote which we had collected the weeks prior. In response to his conscience, Paul decided to abstain from the ordination, particularly with the laying on of hands. He did not want to cause disunity in the midst of that service, he did not want to draw attention to himself, so he decided to stay at home with his family last Sunday. That was hard for him. This was an act of consideration and love, not an act of insubordination. As hard as these past two weeks have been on him, Paul does not regret the conclusion that he came to, and Sean, Clint, and I are not asking him to do so, because we are confident that Paul has the church and Matt's best interest in mind. Being one church together is not easy, and there will be times when we don't completely agree with one another, even at the leadership level. But even in our disagreements, it is our ongoing commitment to conduct ourselves in truth and in love, with consideration always to the name of Jesus and the love of our brothers and sisters. Matt has been very humble and straightforward with us ever since this issue came to light, and we're very grateful for that. 
He expects to have a formal offer from First Baptist to Larry in the next few days, Lord willing, but intends to stay with us through Easter holiday. We're thankful for the work that God is doing in his life, and we are very happy to call him brother. Paul and Matt love and respect one another and will continue to do the gospel work that they have been called to do side by side with grace and peace. Paul receives Matt as an elder in God's church, and Matt receives Paul the same way. So we want to really thank you, church, for not gossiping regarding these matters or forming premature opinions. I'm sure some of you noticed Paul not being here. He's such an important part of our church. But it's our desire to glorify God by treating each other with love and grace. And part of that is letting you know exactly what's going on in our, in our church. And so we wanted to come forward and share that with you. I want you to remember the Apostle's words in Galatians 5, 14 through 16, where he says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Pray for Matt. Pray for Tori. Pray for God to grant all your elders with wisdom and discernment. And pray that the enemy will have no success in sowing division amongst his churches in the world. If you have any questions, we would encourage you to come and talk to us directly about these things. But in the meantime, as we conclude this service, we want to thank the Lord God for giving us this opportunity to serve together and to serve you, our church. Can we all bow our heads and thank the Lord God for this morning as we pray. Our gracious and loving God, we, we thank you for being the holy. And we know that the business of worshiping you and serving you is a holy business, God. And we must be careful about that. Father, it is difficult for people with limited intellect like us to always make the right decision 100% of the time. It's quite impossible. But we do thank you, Lord God, that your revealed word gives us instruction, powerful wisdom that we can use in guiding the church where it needs to go. We praise you, Lord, for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. We praise you especially for Matt and Tori today and the joy we have in their ordination. We praise you, Lord God, that you are doing a work not just here but all over the world. We pray that you would continue, God, in doing that. Father, you, we pray and count on you to continue to refine us in this process, Lord, that when we are in error, that you would bring it to light, God, that we might lovingly correct one another, that we might approach one another with the, with the goal of better discipleship, we could represent our Jesus in a more accurate and, and complete way. We thank you, God, for this wonderful book, Galatians, that has given us guidance and has directed our steps and guided our paths, Lord. Pray that we continue to ring clear in our minds what real justification is. May you continue to have all the glory and the honor and praise for what you have won in us. Maybe, may you continue to do a good work throughout your world. Father, none of us um, is exempt from the Great Commission. You have called us all to be a light to this dark world. And sometimes it is in your design to send us off to different places, God. So, Father, wherever we go, whatever we do, may we be ready and willing to tell the truth about who you are with the people we run into, God. Send us out into this world, Father, that we might multiply the gospel that we've heard in the lives of others, that you might do a great and mighty work with the harvest that you are preparing. We love you and appreciate all that you're doing in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.